for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you will be introduced to the people who work behind the scenes to make sporting events a success. This episode was special to record for me because it was a chance to catch up with the first person to give me a full-time job in sports publicity, Xavier University's Associate Athletic Director for Communications, Tom Iser. In speaking to Tom, I was struck that some of what I do today is directly because I would have learned it from him. It isn't just about the meal that put out or something like that. It's every little detail of making each person that comes there feel like they're important. Let's be honest, their experience that they have will impact how they cover us. Tom has been working with Xavier's basketball team for 34 years. We discussed a number of ways that the job is different in 2020 than it was in 1986. What's changed is there's an awful lot of different ways to, even though the media portion of it in some ways has shrunk, you know, some of the media outlets, a lot of the opportunities to get your, your story out have expanded. Over the years, Tom has spearheaded efforts to earn players national recognition and awards with attention-getting campaigns such as tea bags for Tyrone Hill or a compass for David West. I think taking advantage of your opportunities when you had them were, were really critical. And that's why some of those creative campaigns were even more important then. Two beat writers cover Xavier during the season. Plus, Cincinnati has several columnists as well as a full complement of TV stations. Despite being so well covered, many requests to Tom are for a new, unique story. That's part of my job as well, is trying to figure out how can you tell a story maybe that's already been told, but maybe in a different way. Xavier fans, I think you will really enjoy this episode, especially for some of the trips down memory lane. I mean, at the end of the NCAA tournament game against Missouri, I think in 87, I remember, I think Pete Gillen might have asked me 15 times in the last 30 seconds how many timeouts he had. And he had already used them all, and I had already told him that. Make sure to check out the show notes on credentialsonly.com for links for more on many of the topics we discussed, including some classic Xavier content. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Xavier's Tom Eisen. So, Tom, you joined the Xavier Sports Information Office as an employee in 1986. Have you missed a single basketball game since you started? <laughs> I've, I've missed, uh, I think I counted four. And uh, oh. two of them was for a surgery. One was for a family uh, death and one was for a family wedding. That was about it. And uh, uh, as far as regular season and postseason. So. That means you've done 1,103 games. That's, that's a lot of basketball games. Yeah, I do stopped you, counting after 1,000. <laughs> do, do you get pregame jitters? Uh, did you ever? Have you worked out of that? Do you still get them? Um, I, I still get excited about the, the games, and I think, uh, I think people don't realize that, you know, we are, of course, we're going to be fans because we're close to it. Um, I think we're fans in a different sense in that, because we know the players and coaches on a personal level and what investment they've put into it. Uh, yeah, we probably take it, you know, harder than people realize when, when things don't go as well as we'd like. The team and, and coaches in general in all sports get their teams ready and they really build in routines. You have your shoot around at a certain amount of time before the game, you have your meal a certain amount of time, a walkthrough, um, for you, you're obviously participating in a lot of those activities, but you have your own preparation you need to do. 
what is your pregame like? Is it ritualistic or does it kind of vary day to day? Um, I think the, the, the main thing that I try to do is, is make sure that I'm prepared. And I think uh, most of what I do for, for games, I try to have set in place the day before the game, uh, whether that's preparation materials and things like that. Um, but I, I also try to get there about six hours before the game. Um, the reason for that is uh, I think a lot of people create in a lot of extra anxiety for themselves by showing up at the last minute or they show up late or whatever. And, and I've got things that I can do, whether it's even work or not, not work to keep myself occupied if I get there early and I finish what I need to do to get ready for the game. So I always try to get there about six hours before the game. And our shoot around is about five hours before the game. And that's usually a, a really important time for me because it's usually when I get a chance to go one-on-one -on -one with the, uh, the announcers and the, and the producer, assuming the producer is on site. And then post game, you know, the horn sounds, your job's not done. That's really when you get busy, you're coordinating all the post game press, but also doing all the different reports you have to do statistically and online and everything. How long after the game do you get to get out of there? And then you've mentioned being emotionally invested. Do you then need time to unwind once you get out of the arena? <laughs> I think everybody does. It's, it's hard to get, uh, it's hard to just shut it down at the end of the, at the end of the night. But as far as, um, after the game, there may be a post-game interview. If, it, if, we, if, uh, if Xavier wins, that's, that's the first thing you do. And then usually I'll go into the locker room to listen to what the coach has to say about, uh, about the game. And it's not because I'm a fan in that sense. It's more a, a sense of I've come to the realization that those five minutes, if I can carve those out and listen to what he's telling the team, I know what the messaging is that he's telling the team. Not that I'm going to violate that trust going up there, but I also can get a better sense of who makes sense to, to take to that post-game press conference because it may not be the person who's the stat leader, and, I, and he may surprise me with somebody he pulls out and, and singles out for positive things. So it, it's very helpful that way to make sure we're both on the same page as far as the messaging. How are those game day routines different when you're at home versus on the road? Um, at home, you've got to coordinate, you know, the logistics of, as you know, the, the, the credentialing, you know, having someone, you know, from our tech services meeting the television truck when it arrives very early. Um, you've got people that uh, you've got to coordinate with getting, uh, you know, the, ushers and security for whatever media areas you use uh, and, and all of those logistics. Uh, on the road, it's more, you do go to the shoot around, but in some ways, a lot of times you're, it's like a regular office day, but you're on the road because you're doing a lot of things that aren't necessarily specific to that game because you don't have to take care of all those logistics. Uh, and, and so once you get to the game, uh, you're able to maybe, just seek out some media maybe just to have a conversation and, and build on some of the relationships that you have. Um, talk to the television people, uh, do those kinds of things. There isn't six or seven other things pulling you in another direction because you're a host. And when you're a host, there are a lot of familiar faces, the conference games, you see people year over year, you develop relationships with a lot of those people, but then you also have the opportunity to welcome in others, some bigger non-conference games and whatnot. How important is it for you personally to 
be a great host when you're bringing people into your venue? I think it's extremely important. I think the uh, things have changed. Uh, it's a little bit different than from when, when you were uh, at our place. Uh, there is no such thing anymore. In fact, the last remnants of what you would call press row are gone. Uh, so essentially, because of the popularity and the, the need to raise revenue, uh, we've sold most of that inventory for courtside seating. So we have a television area and we have our, our scorers table. But part of what I have to do is to get creative about, you know, little, you know, some places since we don't have a built in media area in the stands like a lot of arenas might have. Uh, we've, we're kind of doing this after the fact we've created some areas and some bunker areas and in creating a good working environment for them and also a secure working environment for them because I want to make sure that they have a good experience because let's be honest, their experience that they have will impact how they cover us. I mean, they're human. I mean, they, how they're treated by me, how they're treated by the coaches, uh, players, the ushers, the parking attendants, everybody has a, an impact on on the impression that both the fans and the media have the season could be a bit of a grind you've got you know 35 to 38 games typically on average uh over five to six months and the travel on top of that and sometimes you know you're playing a night game and traveling back after the game getting back in three hours in the morning and yet like the players you really want to be peaking come the postseason you get into tournament play and the conference tournament is you play every day and then you get into March Madness, which is its own thing altogether. What are the things you do to keep yourself mentally and physically in the game so that you can be peaking in March as well? <laughs> well, I, I think, I think staying active and I think uh, when you're on the road, you have the opportunity and, and there is some extra time sometimes on the road making sure you take advantage of the fitness rooms and some of those kinds of things, making sure you, you stay sharp, uh, doing some other things just to keep your mind sharp. Um, I think once you get to that March area, though, anyone who's ever been worked with it, um, there's an adrenaline that kicks in. I don't know if that's the way it is for everybody else. But once we get into March, um, I really don't – I have – it's almost like a reserve tank that kind of kicks in and – and until that season is over, um, I've never had that problem with staying up to a crazy hour of the evening if that's what's necessary or whatever, because I, it's such a rush, the whole experience and the whole part of March. We always joke about you can, you can sleep whenever it's over in April. Um, and, and quite honestly, I do usually feel it once April hits and once you shut it down. And I, and I think that's, that's normal, but I – I've never really had a problem with keeping that energy and getting excited. Once I do get to that point where I can't muster that energy in March, it might be time for me to start thinking about, is this for me? You've mentioned the rush in March. You've mentioned the emotional investment you have. I think one of the most unique things from having done your role with other teams is the finality of the end of the season and it comes quick because you're in your regular game day mode and then the game is over and your season is over. What are those days like for you? I think the most difficult part is the, the finality when you, the finality mainly for the senior student athletes. I think people don't understand how difficult that is for them when the season is over and when that experience is over. And I think, 
whether it's fair or not, you know, you get some media that, that don't understand that such and such senior is, doesn't want to talk to anybody or he's kind of avoiding wanting to, it's not because he's being a sore loser. It's just, that's a really emotional time. And I think you have to be cognizant of that and try to help them work through that. I think uh, for me, I have another season next year, you know, for the coaches the same way. I think you have to really feel for the, for the ones where the finality is, this is it for me, for my career and, and understand and be, and be understanding of that and, and, uh, and not just look at it as a job thing, because I think at that point you have to be more of a, you know, a, a friend and kind of a, you know, a, a mentor in some ways or whatever to them and kind of help them at a time and be understanding of the fact that that's a really difficult time they're going through. Yeah, it sure is. And you, you become part of the team, even though you're not playing, you're not necessarily out there for every practice, even as the SID, you really become part of that family, don't you? You do. And I, and I think uh, they, they get, um, they trust you and when you're, you're around them all the time. And that's why I like, you know, getting a chance to travel with them, going, going to practices, going to, to different, you know, events with them. I think it's, uh, it's important for them to trust you um, because um, I think that's an important fact that a lot of coaches try to build with the student athletes, but I think it's just as important for the, for the, uh, the communications person to get that, uh, that trust factor with the, with the student athletes as well. You mentioned the, the seating arrangement there in the arena with press row coming out and courtside seats coming in. In 34 years, there are a lot of things that have changed. What are some of them, though, that as you look back, that have really kind of changed the way you operate? Well, <laughs> it's the whole business has changed because when I started, um, you know, first of all, we don't we don't even use the term sports information anymore. So that that at least we don't. Uh, you know, we uh, it was more of a statistician and you know, you write your re recaps and uh, people don't realize that we would fax those or even in some cases we were mailing copies of things to, to, uh, to media at that point. Um, at, when I started, we didn't have a, a PC or a Mac. There wasn't such a thing. In fact, there wasn't, you know, email was one of the first things. I mean, one of the first years I started at Xavier, that's when email came into vogue. I mean, I mean, I mean, some of my students don't understand that. <laughs> the reason why it's changed is because uh, it's become more digital. Now there's a website. Now, of course, with the advent of social media and all the different platforms that are exploding in social media, um, I think uh, what's changed is there's an awful lot of different ways to, even though the media portion of it in some ways has shrunk, you know, some of the media outlets, a lot of the opportunities to get your, your story out have expanded and you have, and one of the challenges is, is trying to prioritize, okay, where do we want to tell our story and how do we want to tell it and what resources do we have to tell it on what platform? With that extra attention, you do get more TV games and, you know, that's great opportunity, but also more work for you. Also, and I remember this about the time that I was working there, that media guide went from that really stats booklet for the media to being a recruiting tool. Mm -hmm. And how much are you brought into that totality of the program's health now of not just here's who had the most rebounds and most assists, but that 
growing the program. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, and the media guides changed. I mean, we used to print 6,000 of those and we used to mail those out. I mean, you think about the cost in doing that. We're probably at about 800 right now that we print and, and it's much more targeted. Um, they cannot use them for recruiting. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm sure there are people that see them that maybe are, you know, influential or whatever. But as far as uh, they probably go, they go to some donors, they go to some you know, sweet holders and some people like that, but it's, it is more of a, a media targeted thing. But as you mentioned, everything we produce, if it's going to have, you know, let's just use basketball, for example, we do have 18 sports, but since we're talking about basketball, everything we produce for them, we want to be of the highest quality to match the, the people that they are, um, they are trying to compete against. And we talk about those, those contests that they have for media guides, it's not about winning awards, but it is nice to know, you know, how you're doing against Michigan state and against West Virginia and against, you know, Ohio state and Louisville and some of those other schools with everything that you do, because those are the teams that the, the coaches are recruiting against. So I don't want our publications contest to be, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the one AAA. <laughs> thing that they use for the non-football schools because that's not who our coaches are recruiting against. So it's particularly in a sport like football, or I mean, in, uh, but in, in our case, in basketball, we want to, we want to compete with them in recruiting. So I think everything that we produce, social media, media guide programs, game presentation, everything that marketing is doing, all that kind of thing, all those kinds of things, hospitality, you name it, all of that needs to be at, at the same high competitive level that those other programs are at. If you want to be considered equal to them, um, that's who you want to be compared with. In seeing 1,100 games, you have seen a lot of different players, a lot of different stats, probably seen every record set, broken, set again, broken again. It's a ton of data. How do you keep all that organized? Is this just encyclopedic in your head or do you have some systems that you use to help you keep it all straight? Well, I think the media guy does help me on a yearly basis in, the, in terms of basketball, but I, I have a great staff that helps with a lot of, you know, the other 17 sports as well, uh, trying to keep their records and so forth in, in order and organized. And one of the advantages of the website is you can start archiving from year to year. So if you jump back into 2012-13 for men's tennis, you can jump back and get some of their stats and check out their roster. And it's not only accessible to me, but in some ways you're, it's easier to service the public because they actually can self-serve themselves in a sense and that a lot of the questions they used to use some of our time to call us on um, they can actually find on some of our platforms. You have the ability now to be kind of the historian of record as well, and you're involved with the Xavier Hall of Fame. What is your role with that? And it's a unique part of your job because you're living in the past a little bit, but it's a way to honor some, some people who you've seen over the years and, and touch base with, right? Well, the, the Hall of Fame is one of my favorite things to do because it's uh, – and I changed the, com the complexion of the committee and that most of the members of the committee um, are uh, Hall of Famers. 
I mean, there's some former athletes and some, you know, and I try to vary it. We've got a football player and a volleyball player and a tennis player and a, you know, uh, representing as many sports as possible because I think, uh, when the hall of fame started, it was pretty much football and men's basketball, uh, as far as a hall of fame, because those were the sports that were having success. Um, now, as you, you know, if you follow Xavier, there, a lot of our other sports are having that, you know, high level success and, you know, you need that balance. Uh, but it's fun for me to hear the stories from some of those athletes about the past. And quite honestly, especially in sports like football and some of the older ones where I would have no idea. Um, the only thing that I feel bad about sometimes in the Hall of Fame is, let's be honest, the longer you get from when someone played, if they didn't get in, the harder it is to do justice to their candidacy. But uh, that's, that's everybody has that problem when they're talking about Hall of Fames, whether that's the Tennis Hall of Fame, the Xavier Hall of Fame, the Big East Hall of Fame, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, that's just the way it is. There is going to be someone listening to this who says football, Xavier, football. What? What is Xavier's football history? Um, we, uh, we had football until about 1973. Um, I try to explain to people, they were probably, I think we were six and four, maybe something like that. Around 500, the final season they had football. Um, and my understanding is it was, uh, it was a budgetary decision. They were losing. And today's, numbers this wouldn't seem like a lot i guess for football but they were losing about half a million dollars a year and when you think about 1973 that's that's a lot of money for a private school um and uh you know it was tough for them to justify and um we weren't the only one i actually ironically worked at the university of detroit for a while and and they dropped football almost i the simultaneous to that they were another jesuit school that dropped football and so uh but we actually had some success we had a Probably our most, you know, we had uh, one of the first draft picks in Cincinnati Bengals history, John Shinners, Danny Abramowitz, who was a longtime record holder. And so there were some top-level players that played, you know, similar to probably what you would call a mid-American conference type team in football. But I think uh, our basketball program in particular has gotten to such a point that, um, I don't know how else to put it, I mean, our, our fans' expectations are at a certain level. Um, it, it'd be hard for a smaller school to fund, you know, at that level uh, and compete at that level in, in, in football. And there was a bowl game win in, in program history, right? 1949-50, uh, I guess that was the season, right around night, uh, uh, the middle of the century. The Salad Bowl played in Arizona. <laughs> the Salad Bowl. It was a Salad Bowl, yes. <laughs> and we won it. Well, there you go. Won, yeah. 1-0 in the bowl games. I we love are. it. We are, yeah. Um, much the way you're, you're trying to put yourself out there on your best foot forward with the media guides, you get very personally involved in promoting the student athletes. And that's across the board from some, you know, Cincinnati sports awards to weekly conference honors to seasonal conference honors to all the way to 2003 where you successfully got David West to be named national player of the year by a couple of organizations. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the process that you use to develop those campaigns in particular, the ones that are pushing for all American, you know, the conference honors, everybody knows who's good on your team, but when you get to something bigger like the David West or other all American campaigns, this might be the introduction that some media have to the player in question. 
Yeah, I think I think things have changed a little bit in that, you know, when, when I started doing some of these, uh, we weren't on TV very much. Um, so the coaches usually gave me a lot of leeway to kind of single out someone. You know, Byron Larkin, I remember creating a B-Note logo for him and, you know, a lot of people still give me a hard time about creating the special tea bags for the Tea Time Tyrone Hill campaign. Uh, there was a Matrushka doll, a three-part uh, doll for our multilingual All-American candidate, Romain Sato. You know, we created a compass keychain pointing west for David West and bobbleheads were popular. A lot of that stuff was stuff that you would send to directly to voters. Um, but part of what has changed is a lot of coaches um, are not a, don't embrace that as much as maybe they have because I, you know, singling out one player is not as, you know, it's, it can create some other challenges on a team. I think you can understand where I'm going with that. So you have to get a little bit more, you know, you can still use some of these creative ideas. Um, but at the same time, I think a lot of the campaign is done even more so behind the scenes, whether that's uh, finding out who the key media members are that, you know, everyone, everyone's looking to see what their opinion is of the, of the athletes. I, I used to love to use basketball times, which is not a high, it doesn't have a high circulation rate. I think, I, I think they would admit that too, but the people that, uh, that read it and have, and have read it in the past, our coaches, our key media people, our people that are really into basketball. And, and if you can get to that group, I think that helped us because it's a USBWA tie-in with uh, basketball times as well. Um, we've gotten an awful lot of, we got, you know, national coach of the year with the U.S. Basketball Writers Association. I don't think those kinds of things are, are a coincidence trying to get some attention through those types of, uh, of methods. But some of the other uh, creating a, you know, trinkets and other things that you send directly to media. Um, we don't do as much of that in the past because we don't, honestly, you don't have a lot of mailing addresses for a lot of media. So it's right. hard to do it that old fashioned way. Some of the media still accept that and you can send them things. So I'll send, I'm still old fashioned. I'll still send a personal note sometimes with a media guide. If I know a media per key media person and I'll send that with them because I think that's a lost art, but I think the, uh, a lot of the media prefer to get their stuff electronically. Uh, and if they are going to cover you, then they'll want you to send them something. But the, the days of sending a guide to everyone in the, you know, 150, 200, 300, 400 writers, uh, those days, we don't do that anymore. So. You mentioned the TV exposure. And just to give some people some perspective on that. So Byron Larkin was in the mid to late 80s. How many TV games did, did he probably have in a season? Uh, I think early on, probably only about a half a dozen, maybe 10, 12. I think outside of the Cincinnati area, it was probably less than that. Because, uh, you know, we had our local TV packages that we that we had, but uh, as far as regional and national TV, those opportunities were very few and far between. And when we were on national TV, it's a good point is, uh, it was critical for me to figure out, okay, how are we gonna maximize that? Um, I know we created a thank you David West, you know, sign that we put up, you know, for one of the national TV games. Uh, we had a B Larkin, you know, a B 
you know, thing that we had the fans holding up when, during one of the national TV games when he was at Xavier. I think um, you really had to take advantage of those. Now, with us being on national TV on a, on a you know, a, a pretty much almost every game, um, I think it's more about consistency of messaging and making sure that you're in the ears of those producers and announcers and other media that are, that are, uh, that are covering those games and making sure that you're, you're giving the right messages to who you're trying to push and what messages you're trying to push. And, and I think even, you know, Tyrone Hill was only a few years after Byron and probably didn't have that many more, but even you talked about Romain Sato, David West in the early two thousands, even then, you, you weren't close to the amount of TV exposure you have now, were you? No, no. And, and, and I, think, uh, I think taking advantage of your opportunities when you had them were, were really critical. And that's why some of those creative campaigns were even more important then. Um, and I think, uh, uh, but I, taking advantage of national TV is, is still critical. It's just that we have a lot more opportunities now. You have, in your time at Xavier, worked with six different head coaches. What do you do to acclimate when there is that coaching transition to figure out the working relationship and what their expectation is for you? I think you just have to be honest with them and try to figure out what are their, what's their style and what's their, what are their priorities because they're going to get hit from a lot of different directions, especially nowadays. I think they're you know, they're going to get, there's a lot of development people, there's marketing, there's the, you know, the AD's got some things and there's some things on campus. In addition to your, you know, what you'd like to do from a media standpoint and other, other things. So I think uh, it, it's really important in, in my, in my opinion, to be, uh, to be able to prioritize what you're asking your coach to do and be upfront with them and try to feel out, okay, he would be open to doing this and, you know, this person would be open to doing that. Certain coaches don't want to do, you know, certain things. Uh, and that's part of the learning process for you. One of the other things is you have to learn which coaches uh, you need to follow up with to make sure that they follow through and that they're, <laughs> because it really matters when a, when a player or a coach is, is on time and they're courteous. We preach to them all the time. But if they're not and they miss that, you know, I don't want to spend half of my year making excuses for coaches or players because I think that eventually that, that wears thin with, with, with the media. And I think um, I find out if there are certain coaches, I'll, I'll use Skip Prosser as an example. He, if you told him and you scheduled something, he wrote it in his book. And I remember the first time I set something up with him. Um, I walked into his office and I said, uh, coach, are we still good for that interview at two o'clock? And he stared at me and he said, you saw me write it in my book, right? I said, yeah, I just wanted to make sure he says, I wrote it in my book. I'm not, I'm not my predecessor. And, uh, so, he, um, so, I, so certain coaches you had to follow up with some, some you didn't. And, and I think that's, that's part of my job is to figure out, you know, who's, uh, uh, who to follow up on and who not to what kind of stuff they're, Oh, they're good at and what stuff they're not good at. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of help them through that. What do you do during a basketball game? During a basketball game? Uh, hopefully if I've done my job, 
Um, and we've got everything set, you know, as we talked about doing the preparation and everything, and there aren't any fires going on other than the fireworks before the game for the intros, um, that uh, I'm able to, A, enjoy the game, but also just kind of look for things that I can kind of feed to the media, whether that's the TV or some of the beat writers and so forth that are there um, and feed them information uh, that might help them do a better job with what they're doing. Uh, so I, I think if you're, if you, I have such a, I have a really good staff that takes care of the, you know, the social media part of it for the most part, you know, particularly at home games and uh, as well as posting to, to go Xavier.com and some of those other, other things. So um, my hope is that I'm available to, it might be some logistical things where I have to, grab a photographer because he's strayed into an area he's not supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, th there's some of that, but then, then, then hopefully there's an opportunity for me to uh, give some things to the television and some of the other uh, media that are covering the game that might enhance our coverage. Road games are slightly different though, because you're not having to oversee that whole operation. So what do you do with those road games? Um, our hope is that, you know, we've been, we've, the last few years we've hired photographers. So sometimes that's me. Sometimes that's somebody back at, at Xavier that's kind of, uh, grabbing some of those photos and kind of funneling them to, for use on social media. That's part of what we're doing. Um, I used to keep a complete scorebook. I don't do that anymore. I, the coaches still want me to keep a book and mainly because, uh, they want somebody keep making sure that the score is right. Uh, the fouls are right. The timeouts are right. I think that's, but those are probably the main areas. They couldn't care less if, you know, in my scorebook, if Tyreek Jones has 10 points or 14, doesn't matter because <laughs> there's an official box score, but they, it is good to have somebody at the table that can keep an eye on, you know, potential problems. And there have been in the past. And uh, quite honestly, there was one in the NCAA tournament that, um, that happened where I had to, you know, bring it to the attention of the, the site rep or whatever, because they, you know, that there was a problem and they refused to correct it. Uh, so that's something that I still do. I just don't worry about making it a complete, you know, scorebook thing. The other thing is uh, that is different from when, yeah, uh, when you were with us, we are usually will travel with a video person. Now we finally have a video person, but grabbing you know student athletes uh, after a win usually will will grab uh, sound after a win and uh, funneling that back to our local you know not just for our use for our website and that, but it's become very common both for our both at home games you know pregame press conferences and on the road for us to funnel them um, sound to go with the highlights. And I think we've really gotten some great feedback from our media and the fact that we've, we've enhanced our coverage by, by helping them do a better job. As you're keeping that scorebook and, and just making sure there aren't any mistakes, have any of the coaches over the years kind of brought you into the game where they're having a running commentary with you or they're, neurotically checking with you about things or, or are they pretty well in their own world and you're just another person sitting at that table next to them? Uh, if I have to say, if they put, usually I used to sit right next to the official score, but now that I'm sitting next to the bench, 
and next to Mario Mercurio, who sits there as well. Yeah, there's some commentary, some that I could repeat, some that I couldn't. <laughs> um, uh, most of the time in the past, it used to be coaches just asking you um, a thousand times how many timeouts they have. I mean, like, I mean, I, at the end of the NCAA tournament game against Missouri, I think in 87, I remember, I think Pete Gillen might have asked me 15 times in the last 30 seconds how many timeouts he had. And he had already used them all, and I had already told him that. But I think I think we were out. So, but regardless, I mean that, that usually it's just um, asking timeouts is usually the most popular one. Or they might confirm they might have a question. You know, so and so doesn't have that many fouls, do they? Um, the other commentary I probably shouldn't repeat. So, <laughs> uh, the coaches who have come through Xavier. Um, you mentioned Pete Gillen, Skip, Thad Mata, then Sean Miller, Chris Mack. Um, they've all left Xavier for other opportunities. And those are always tough times. Um, and it, there are other opportunities that probably came up for some of these coaches over the years as well. But it puts you in a, in a different position because you're working closely with these coaches as people, and they've got this professional opportunity. You're also representing Xavier and working for the school. And yeah as you go through those situations, what's kind of that middle ground that you find you have to take in handling that onslaught of media, which is usually in the middle of a time of year, specifically April, when you're trying to get that rest after a busy season. You mean if there's a coaching change? If there's a, or, or even just the rumors of there being a coaching change. Yeah. I think, I think we got to the point where we, we, uh, we didn't comment on coaching changes. But I also think that, you know, understanding that there, that happens. And I think uh, the fact that uh, we stuck to the messaging that we've always had, and this is not a knock on any coach that has left or whatever, but I think one of the things that's most impressive about the fact that uh, Xavier's recent basketball history is pretty consistently we have gotten better every time we've made a change. And I think that's probably, probably not unusual in some businesses as well in that, you know, a, a change can sometimes be an, an opportunity. And, uh, and I think, uh, I think in, in our case, I think that has, and we make sure that, you know, even media know that, you know, we wish him the best or, you know, when, whoever that might be, but we're excited about this, you know, uh, what the next chapter is for us. And if history dictates anything, it's that we're just going to get better. And I think if we keep that messaging consistent, I think that's, that's probably been the thing that we've spent the most time on doing. In any communications job, especially if you've been there for a few decades as you have, there are going to be things that come up that are negative publicity or a crisis communication situation. What is your approach if and when there is bad news that you have to deal with? I, I think the uh, the first thing you do is is uh, try to get as much information as you can, and usually there is a small group. You know, if it happens to be basketball, it's probably going to involve the coaching, you know, the coaches and uh, our athletic director, myself, um, and some others. I think you also learn from you know some things that maybe went right and didn't go right, and you know some things that you you know that you used in the past that. You know, quite honestly, you have to admit that that didn't work and you're going to do it differently. 
I think that's the one thing that you have to keep in mind whenever there's a crisis situation is, is never lose sight of the fact that, uh, okay, part of what we need to do is to make, to figure out how do we avoid this happening again. Cincinnati used to be a two newspaper town. Used to have the Inquirer and the Post. Both of them had a beat writer covering Xavier basketball. Both of them had columnists who were expected to, you know, put out exclusive content and and more in-depth content. How do you balance when you have two different entities plus two different writers from each entity plus the newspapers and all these different people wanting to get something unique, something exclusive. How do you weigh all that and figure out who gets what? Um, that, that's a difficult, you know, that is difficult sometimes. And I think, uh, you know, there are two entities right now that are around a lot and that's, we have a beat writer for the athletic, um, Shannon Russell, and we have, uh, uh, Adam Baum who covers us for the Cincinnati Enquirer. Um, and the Enquirer actually travels with us and, and all of those factors have to be weighed into, you know, the commitment that they make, you know, um, certainly impacts, you know, you know, how we take care of them. But you've also got, as you know, television stations who have relationships and their expectations and everybody wants a story that hasn't been told, which I always find kind of amusing, especially as we get into March when some of the networks ask for a story that hasn't been told, you do understand we have two beat writers and we have an interested (laughs) television media in the area. There's, there's nothing that hasn't been told, but I think uh, a good storyteller can tell a story maybe in a different way. And I think if you explain that to them and try to help them maybe put a different spin on a particular story, um, that's part of my job as well is trying to figure out um, how can you, Uh, tell a story maybe that's already been told, but maybe in a different way. You have mentioned this a couple times during our conversation that there is way more to Xavier athletics than just men's basketball. There are 17 other sports. How involved are you in the other programs and not necessarily limited to just the sports information role? Yeah, the, uh, uh, beyond, uh, everything I have to do in communications, I, I, I'm currently I'm the administrator for men's and women's track and cross country. Um, in the past, I've done that for um, soc- women's soccer, for um, I've had men's golf, uh, women's golf. Um, I actually hired the first women's golf coach that we ever had. So I've, I've had, I've, it, it gives you a, you know, tennis was another one, men's and women's tennis briefly. Uh, so I, I think it's nice because it kind of gives you a little bit different perspective. Um, That role is more of a kind of, you're the first person that the coach reports to and and is communicating with. And then you kind of take whatever needs to be taken, for example, to the athletic director. That's kind of oversimplifying the process, but it's kind of uh, takes a little bit off of the plate of the athletic director, but also gives the program's a little bit more personal attention. So each of our sports has someone that they, now they call them sport liaisons, but the, that kind of help with that. Um, as far as the day-to-day communications parts for some of those sports, I help out where I can. Um, and I think uh, uh, I probably do less than I, than I did when you were there. Um, and part of that is because I have a larger staff now. Um, so, uh, so recruiting good staff and, and recruiting good students to help you cover some of the other sports, um, 
whatever I can do to allow me to maximize the time I'm spending on the sport that let's be honest is the one that's, you know, uh, driving the engine, so to speak. And that's, uh, that's raising the dollars. I, I, let's be realistic. That's, that's where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time, but wherever I can be helpful in a lot of those other areas, I like to use some of the relationships I have in the media area to maybe position some stories and some other things in some of the local media and some other media um, with the relationships I've built through basketball. I want to end talking a little bit more about the basketball. Um, (coughs) 34 seasons, only one of them was a losing season. I want you to be honest. Would the job be a lot harder if there were a lot more losing seasons? Uh, it would be hard. I mean, it, uh, and, and honestly, I'm not, I'm not a great, you know, loser in that respect. I mean, I am a very competitive guy, a lot more so than I think some, some of our athletes even realize. So I think it's a lot. Uh, I had, I, that's why I think some of the coaches that have been the most competitive have been the ones that I've clicked the best with. Uh, so I think absolutely it's, a. I would have a hard time, doing this for 30 something years in any school, even with my entire family being here and all the other reasons why I stayed, um, if we were, you know, under 500 for consistently. Of the 33 winning seasons, 25 have ended in the NCAA tournament, uh, including three trips to the elite eight. You've seen again, 1100 games, but gut reactions. If I ask you for the best games you've seen, what are the first couple that come to mind? Um, I think the most entertaining game I've ever seen uh, would probably be a tie between the Kansas State NCAA tournament game, but since that's a loss, we'll, we'll take that one off the <laughs> list. Uh, the Loyola Marymount game when uh, Hank Gathers and Bo Kimball, and they had that really rolling at Loyola Marymount, and we beat them at our place 115-113. I only remember that score because – it was like a, a roller coaster. I mean, we were down by 20 and then we came, came back. We're up by 10 and then we were down by 15. And then we it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I think uh, um, Tyrone and Derek each had 20 and 20. So uh, oh, wow. it, was, it was a wild, wild game. I think the NCAA tournament games, I think I remember um, because, and particularly some of the first, the first NCAA tournament win, Missouri, the first Sweet 16, the, the, the one against Georgetown, um, the first Elite Eight when, you know, we beat, uh, you know, Louisville, Mississippi State, and then Texas in, uh, in 2004. So I think a lot of times I'll remember the first um, in a lot of sports. When I was working with women's soccer, I told people if I were to list the 10 most memorable moments uh, for myself in my, you know, tenure at Xavier, it'd be hard for me to leave out uh, when women's soccer made their first NCAA tournament appearance by um, coming from behind and winning in a penalty kick shootout at Dayton, beating Dayton uh, to go to the NCAA tournament. Um, so I think uh, a lot of those firsts being there for a lot of those is, is really cool. Is really cool. And there's, there's almost too many big moments <laughs> though to, to list just a couple. And you mentioned that Loyola Marymount game being at the gardens. That was a, a unique but pretty awesome venue, and I can't imagine that night it had to be absolutely rocking for that game. It, it was, and I and I think the gardens. I I, I mean, it. I love 
Cintas Center, and we've been there a lot longer than I, you know, than 20 years now. Uh, but the gardens was a unique place, and it was uh, it was really good to us. And that place really, really rocked when <laughs> when when we got it going. And I, I think when we had some of our bigger games, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Best individual performance you've seen? Um, I. I'd say uh, it would it would be hard to to uh, to top David West's forty seven points and I don't know eighteen nineteen rebound whatever he had against Dayton um, in, a, in the game at uh, at uh, Cintas Center um, that was a that was an amazing effort I mean and and I think the the thing that made it so amazing is that you didn't you didn't get a sense that he was hogging the ball it was just like he was just on such a, such a roll. Um, and he was taking great shots and it was, it was just, it was a, it was a lot of fun to watch. And the fact that we were beat Dayton was, was, was fun too. So. I feel like you may have already given this answer with what you spoke about with the women's soccer team, but I was going to ask for the proudest moment or moments from your career. Um, I think, uh, certainly that, you know, if you're talking about sports, I mean, I think that. Um, I think watching, you know, I was, when I was with, uh, men's golf, you know, dealing with them, uh, we had a young man named Tim Donovan who just shattered the course record at like 18 or 19 under par for the tournament and won the conference championship. That's one of the more incredible performances that I've ever seen in any sport. Um, and I think, uh, um, as far as proud moments, um, I, there was uh, honestly, it's, it'd be hard for me to, to single out one or two because I, I, I think um, I, I'm, I'm really proud of the, of the, despite the fact that some people are cynical about it, um, I'm really proud of the graduation record that we have and, and the, the fact that we still, uh, we still put an emphasis on, on the academic side of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why I've stayed at Xavier. It's not just because it's in my hometown and my family is here and everything. Certainly that's part of it, but I believe in what Xavier, you know, uh, the mission of Xavier. And I think if you're in communications and you probably know this, having been in the field for as long as you have, um, it makes it a heck of a lot easier. Certainly it makes it easier if you win, but it, it really makes it a lot easier if you believe in what you're selling, because at some point, somebody's going to see right through you if you're selling something that, quite honestly, you do not believe in yourself. And and I've been really, really lucky uh, with the athletes, the coaches, and all, and particularly the school itself, that I've been able to sell something that I actually believe in, and that's really cool. And we'd be remiss if we didn't mention a person who has a pretty key role in that graduation, right? Because you have almost become her publicist personally. You've gotten her, New York Times, for sure, during the NCAA tournament. You've gotten her a lot of coverage. Who is this woman and what makes her so special? Um, uh, Sister Roseanne Fleming, I think what makes her special, she's, she's not hands-on, but she's still around. You know, she's, uh, she was our academic advisor for, for, in particular for men's basketball for a long time. Our long graduation streak um, she deserves a heck of a lot of credit for that. But I think what I know, what I remember the most about her is when I talk to the athletes, when they come back on campus, the first person they ask 
you know, is sister is sister on campus today? Can I, do you know if you've, have you seen sister is, and you know, the reason for that and what makes her so special is there was never an agenda. You could really, I think everyone could learn from the way that she approaches, you know, her relationships with everyone else. She really genuinely was trying to help each individual uh, without any expectation of getting anything in return. And for a lot of these young men who, let's be honest, people have had their hands out and they've wanted things from them and they're, they're not trusting everyone. Um, she built a lot of trust with some guys that quite honestly didn't trust a lot of people because they found out in short order uh, that she had their best interest in mind. She was tough on them. She'd knock on their door at five or six in the morning if they didn't, if they didn't have an assignment done or if they needed to finish something. Uh, but I think what makes her special is that she is genuinely about helping other people. And it's, um, I don't know how else to put it. She's, she's a, she's a li as close to a living saint as I've, I've ever met. <laughs> you yourself are a Xavier graduate and you left, as you said, to Detroit Mercy. You also had a brief stint working as a radio reporter at NPR. Mm -hmm. How much did working as a journalist influence the way you do your job now? I think uh, even though it was just for a few years, I think it helped me uh, realize that even just taking care of some of the little things, it's not about what the meal is that you spread, which is nice. I mean, we have Montgomery in, by the way, at the, <laughs> but uh, it, it isn't just about the meal that, uh, that's, uh, that's put out or something like that. It's every little detail of making each person that comes there feel like they're important. And I, and I, I'm a little bit different than some in that um, I want to have a conversation and I want to know the names of, of that, um, that person that's running the camera for Fox underneath the basket or whatever. I'll talk to them. Um, I do know that there are some places where they don't even let them in the media room, you know, so it's a little bit different in that I, I, I've always felt like all of those people, um, you know, you treat everybody the same. And I think that's something I, that was really hammered into me by the way that uh, Skip Prosser treated everyone. Um, it didn't matter who you were and what you, what your background was. Um, he treated everybody the same. And I think that's, uh, I think that that's the best way to, to build a great relationship with the media, I think. I'm going to close with what I close every episode of Credentials Only with and the set pieces. Uh, a few rapid fire questions for you. Uh, first of all, what are some podcasts and or newsletters that you use to stay informed and keep learning? Well, um, I've just started, you know, be, uh, getting into a few of them. I think I actually had to jot a few of them down because you, you, you <laughs> could mention you were going to um, podcasts. I think, some of the social media ones are good. There's one social media marketing with the social media examiner, uh, Twitter smarter with Madeline Sklar, I think is very good. Social pros podcast. I started listening to last week. Um, uh, from a communication standpoint, I, you know, a couple of them that I've recently listened to, uh, episodes, Hanson and hunt talking points. If you've ever heard of that, uh, future proof, <laughs> PR, you know, in, in caps, uh, um, hashtag future proof uh, with the Waddingtons and then a one that's called for immediate release. So I, I, 
those are probably the half dozen that come to my mind that, uh, that I've listened to. Obviously, I'll be throwing the Pete Holterman podcast into that mix as number seven. Um, right? Excellent. Um, so that's probably, those are probably, and as far as newsletters, I think just kind of, you know, NACTA has one, COSIDA has one. I'm a member of PRSA because I don't want to just be getting just stuff that's just sports oriented. Um, and uh, there's some good stuff in the PRSA issues and trends that comes in in a regular newsletter to us as well. Who are your MVFs, your most valuable follows? These are the social <laughs> posts you don't want to miss. You want to make sure you see what they've put out there. Um, I think uh, I won't put media in there because I think you, everyone who will follow the media that you need to cover, I think that's an, that's an obvious. I think your colleagues and people like that. Um, I like some of the stuff that's put out by Fieldhouse Media. Um, I like the PR Daily. Uh, PRSA has uh, tactic, PRSA tactics, and then I'll do some just because I enjoy the messaging that they have. You know, I'm a big John Gordon guy. I mean, I love, you know, I love his books. I love his messaging, his positive, positive messaging. Uh, Jeremy Darlow, same thing. I think on branding, I think he does a great job. And there's a lot of, you know, social media people that, you know, I won't list all those, but they're that that I follow just to kind of see what they're thinking and what and sometimes you get tips on maybe some other ones you should follow because they mentioned somebody and I'll go and check sure. out the Oregon you know football uh, <laughs> uh, post that they did on Instagram or something so what are a couple books that you would recommend um, you, well, I mentioned John Gordon, so obviously, you know, you would start with the energy bus, but I think he's got, I've got all of his training camp and carpenter and, you know, I mean, I, I've got my, my wife bought me the whole set <laughs> for Christmas <laughs> last year because I, I said, I'd really like, and I, why I like them is they're easy to read because they're in, you know, kind of in story form. So the messaging is clear and easier to remember and understand. And I think, um, you, you don't feel like as if you have to commit a week and a half sometimes to it, uh, <laughs> to, to finish it off. Um, I, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed Patrick, uh, Lencioni's books. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but, uh, the five dysfunctions of a team death by a meeting. I mean, there's a whole bunch of those that I have in my collection. Um, and I'm, I'm eager to actually read the book that, uh, Kevin Eastman just put out. So I can't really recommend it, but why the best are the best, but I'm looking forward to that because I really like his messaging, his positive messaging as well. What are you streaming right now? TV and or music? Um, I, because of the fact that we're stuck at home, um, <laughs> I've actually, uh, um, I actually have caught up on Homeland. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. No spoilers. I was a couple of, I was a couple of, couple of years, um, behind so i am totally caught up i actually saw the new episode last night and i and uh that's uh so i'm gonna have to catch up on the jordan thing so don't tell anybody that um, <laughs> the uh this is us and uh is another one that i that i like in the chicago med fire and pd i am kind of addicted to but um but i'm i'm really excited that i'm finally caught up on homeland yeah, that's that is a good effort. I think I'm like three seasons behind. So good for you. 
What is your favorite sports memory as a kid? Um, well, I, I would say I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you favorite sports memory, but I'm also going to give you something that'll, that'll probably make you laugh and why I ended up here. The watching the 75 and 76 were a big red machine with my family on a black and white TV when I was growing up, um, you know, going to the, to watch those teams with straight A tickets. I don't know how they, you know, they gave them anyway. <laughs> now that Riverfront, Riverfront stadium, I loved Pete Rose as a player. I'm not going to get into all the other stuff about Pete Rose, but I loved him as a player. And, and yes, I have a lot of, uh, suffered a lot of skin knees and so forth, trying to imitate him on, uh, on a blacktop, uh, 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 baseball field, uh, right up the street from my parents' house. But, uh, as an athlete, probably my, one of my biggest, uh, highlights was setting a personal best of, which I thought was really cool of under 10 minutes for two miles in a, in a district championship track meet, which on the surface, you're like, Oh, that's really cool. Um, but the, the person who set, set the district record was also in that meet, um, a guy named Eric Huey, um, who my teammates really supportively mentioned to me afterwards that I almost made the inquire photo of him finishing because he was getting ready to lap me. Uh, and so at that point i realized that he was certainly a full scholarship athlete but uh i realized that maybe it was time to look at journalism that i was probably not going to be a an athlete myself so there's always that moment where you're like hmm maybe there's something else around the sport but not actually in the sport yeah that was a pretty (laughs) eye-opener my last question do you collect your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I, I, I have a box of them and each one has a kind of a memory to it. A couple of them that probably stick out. I really enjoyed working the uh, 1994 World Cup sessions in Detroit. Um, and uh, I thought that was an honor to get a chance to do that. Um, I do have the press credential and some other, um, you know, a, a memento from the Arizona, ironically, my 1,000th game at Xavier, uh, working at Xavier for men's basketball, was the win over Arizona in the regional semifinal in 2017, which makes it even extra special. Um, so I have, certainly that has a special place on my, my wall. Um, but there's a, I keep the box because they, each one has a story, and probably the one that hits home the most recently is um, – in 2003, I got the opportunity to, to kind of be the co-media host for the Women's World Cup. I think it was still considered the, I was still called the Women's World Championship then uh, because of the SARS scare in, in uh, China. Um, the U.S. was asked to host again, and they, they uh, moved the Women's World Cup uh, Championship to Columbus Crew Stadium, and that was really cool to see that type of a, elite level event um, and get a chance to just kind of play a role, a small role in, in helping put that on. But that was really cool. And um, it obviously with what's happening today, that kind of hits home a little bit as far as uh, reminding me of that. Tom, I appreciate, uh, first of all, you taking a chance on me many years ago, both as a student, but then as a, a member of your staff, I appreciate you not taking the opportunity to point out 
my tenure when saying that sometimes turnover in staff makes the, the, the program better, uh, but I know you were thinking it, uh, but I appreciate the time today as well for coming on Credentials Only. Thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation. As always, the show notes on credentialsonly.com will include links to provide context to so much of what we discussed, as well as to the items Tom mentioned during set pieces. Those links include a vintage Gus Johnson performance on the highlight of Xavier's double overtime NCAA game against Kansas State. Jordan Crawford's bucket at the end of the first overtime is peak Gus. Also, in particular for Xavier fans, there is a link to a documentary produced and directed by Xavier students, Connor Muldoon and Mercedes Oliver about sister Roseanne Fleming that I had not seen before. I really enjoyed getting the chance to watch that. My thanks again to Tom for this great conversation and thanks to you for listening. Credentials Only is a Holter Media production and is edited by Mike Muche. Let us know what you thought by leaving your review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please give us a follow on your favorite social media channels. And when you head to credentialsonly.com, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share.